This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. Today on the WSJ Media Mix podcast, 360i CEO Sarah Hofstetter describes how her agency lures new talent, how the ad agency model is changing, and why a diverse employee base matters. Welcome to the WSJ Media Mix podcast, bringing you interviews and analysis with people that matter in the fast-changing media business. Hello and welcome to the WSJ Media Mix podcast. I'm Stephen Perlberg. I'm joined by Jack Marshall, my colleague as always. Jack, how are you? I'm good, Steve. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, we we're have re- that same exchange every every week. We'll, we'll try to <laughs> mix it up eventually, but I'm just going to keep doing that until someone tells me otherwise. But uh, we are excited. Once again, we have a great episode. Uh, today we are joined by Sarah Hofstetter. She's the CEO of 360i, the digital marketing firm, and we're going to talk all things advertising, marketing, digital. So, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, uh, maybe we should kick it off uh, th- this episode talking about sort of the I don't know the ch- the changing landscape of of real time marketing. I've been covering this space for about two years, and I, I feel like at the beginning everyone was talking about things like uh, you know brands like live tweeting events and and that was like the hot topic and now i i I don't know if that's so much like it seems like kind of brands can be awkward on twitter and people have this sort of backlash against it so you kind of sit at the center of that where do how do you think like real-time marketing and um brands kind of like getting into the digital conversation has changed over the past few years well, as with everything, there's a right time and a right place for everything. And sometimes when people try to capture lightning in a bottle and then keep trying it over and over again, some sometimes it works and sometimes you have some pretty, uh, like you said, awkward moments. So what's interesting... Which, to be clear, because you guys did kind of catch lightning in a bottle with uh, the Super Bowl. We Oreo. kind of screwed up the whole industry, yeah. <laughs> you ruined yeah. it for everybody. Maybe we should <laughs> yeah. start, start with you guys. So first of all, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Second of all... Don't be a moron. So fa- you guys famously were behind the Oreo tweet yes. at the Super Bowl. Uh, was it two years ago, three years ago? I think it was four years ago. Oh, my gosh. Um, wow. We've come a long way. Uh, when the, the lights went out at the Super Bowl and uh, Oreo tweeted, you can dunk in the dark, it got like a million retweets, and everyone was like, this is the future of marketing. Yeah, the, the irony of the whole thing is that real-time marketing had been around for quite some time. It might not have been as evidenced as it was, let's say, with the creative speed and agility. But if you look at, let's say, even the origins of 360i, which is in search, I mean, that is that is the epitome of real-time marketing. I'm looking for a red dress. Here is a red dress. Boom. Ready. Exactly the way I want it. And I can buy it immediately. It was historically very technology-driven, which is great. You're meeting consumer needs with the products that they're looking for. That's great. I think the advent of you know, creativity and being able to be there with the right kind of message without being so DR-focused was something that really um, changed. But but the reason why we were able to be successful at that, and I think probably why Oreo is the more known brand than, let's say, a lot of the other brands who were equally speedy um, that night was the holistic approach to it because it wasn't just coming up with a tweet. That tweet had been 
thought of over the course of time, not that particular one, but the methodology behind it, the right voice, the right look, the right cadence. That's something that Oreo had been building up in its muscle memory for many months. Um, If you recall, the summer before that Super Bowl, Oreo had done this campaign called The Daily Twist, which was reimagining Oreo through the eyes of culture every single day based on the news, which today seems like no big deal, but then was pretty much unheard of. That was for Oreo's 100th birthday. So the brand really was used to doing it. And so because they had the muscle memory, it was much easier. Second part was the power of the earned media. So it wasn't just that we had that tweet. It was what we did after the tweet, which was reaching out to influencers and sharing it and and inspiring much more organic sharing than just throwing it up there and, you know, if you build it, they will come. We really worked to make sure that that got into the culture during that blackout, which lasted quite some time. So so where do we stand? Because I remember back then, was it 2012 or 2013? But anyway, around that time, sort of the idea of... uh, It was uh, February 2013, so it was three and a half years ago, yeah. So the idea of sort of a, a brand newsroom or... War room, I think, was another term that was thrown around kind of strangely. Can't we just all get along? I don't need (laughs) war rooms. I have such an aversion to war rooms, and they they just crop up everywhere. But yes. So that was kind of the hot thing, and, you know, everybody was kind of writing about it, if if not doing it. Um, I'm just curious, sort of fast-forwarding to 2016, is that something that sort of clients are still asking for? Is that the type of thing that you recommend? Or was that just sort of a Like a team a of millennials? A team of millennials, That's like <laughs> live tweeting events? <laughs> well, that, there, as with everything, there is a time and a place. So depending on the brand's involvement with that particular um, maybe unique time and place, it does make sense. But having a war room or a newsroom staffed 24-7, I mean, that has to be underwritten somehow, right? That's, the Wall Street Journal has a news organization that is underwritten in, in, in many different ways. Brands are not built to be 24-7 constantly with, you know, witty humor. So, the but there are certain times and places where it does make sense. For example, let's say you're a big sponsor of the Tonys, if you will, and your brand has a reason to be there, then perhaps during a limited time with a start, middle, and end, that would be a nice place for you to have a conversation. But ultimately, A, it's terrible for the industry if everyone is 24-7. There's too much crap on the internet as it is. <laughs> Brands are already inserting themselves into places they don't belong. So we need to have some element of balance here. Otherwise, we overcorrect and get way too intrusive, and then we wonder why consumers tune us out. You, you're, you're getting into something that we, we also wanted to talk about, which is the idea of sort of um, brands as as publishers or that kind of brands can can do their own thing and might not need agencies as much that sort of the the changing heresy complete heresy <laughs> the sort of changing what is this man speaking of <laughs> so i mean that's obviously a huge tension right everyone's talking about it like the agency model is changing agencies are getting sort of squeezed from uh you know by their by their clients and and also the well the publisher side as well right i mean obviously over the past few years publishers us included have sort of built out their own sort of creative services divisions. Why do you need an agency when you can just come to a place like, you know, the journal or or any number of media companies that can work directly with the brand? So like you're an agency, you sit at the middle. How do you what do you think about that and how do you kind of stay relevant? Well, outside of my heresy statement, <laughs> um, I, I think the role of an agency has has had to change over time if they're going to be a true partner to the client. So if you're a vendor, then it becomes very challenging because, hey, I used to make your creative and now this other guy is. 
that's 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 a very vendor uh, oriented relationship. Uh, an agency partner is really there to be thinking about what's in the client's best interest. And in some cases, what's in the client's best interest is to work directly with a publisher and create bespoke content that works within the publisher's rubric, tone and voice, take advantage of all the different things that it has to deliver on. I think one of the nice things about the agency that I work at is we actually do both creative and media. So we don't I'm not going to say we don't care. What we try to do is take an agnostic approach to planning paid, earned, and owned in its entirety. And so that means in some cases we're making the content. In some cases we're working with a publisher to make the content. In some cases, and we've been doing this for over a decade, we're working with an influencer to make the content. So it's more about making sure you have the right strategy, the right comms plan, the right North Star, the right priorities, and Oftentimes, clients don't necessarily have not only the infrastructure within their four walls, um, they also don't have necessarily all of the up-to-date information you might have. The benefit of one of the many benefits of an agency is having the strength in the capability and depth and adaptability to change. That's what we're bringing to the equation. If it was just because we can make prettier pictures or wittier copy, then yeah, that wouldn't work. So that brings us on to another sort of hot debate in the agency world over the past few years, which is the the talent question, which I guess is always a always a question. But as sort of you know, technology is evolving, and agencies are sort of competing for talent with, I guess, sort of a, an increasing array of of other companies. So you've got the tech guys, and you know, startups, and uh, I guess just growing competition for the, for the same types of people. Um, I guess, how do you sort of attract talent? Is that becoming more difficult? You know, why, why work at an agency? If, if you're graduating now from, you know, wherever it may be with a computer science degree or whatever it might be, why why sort of take yourself to an agency? Well, I can only speak for the agency I work at, um, largely because it's the only job I've ever had at an agency. <laughs> so I can only speak from this one. Um, and, and the reason why I do is actually the same reason I'm encouraging my daughter to shop around at a lot of colleges, which is options. What's great about working at an agency, A, no two days are the same, blah, blah, blah. I'm sure Google says the same thing. But you really have diversity of thought, and you have the opportunity to have diversity of thought and, and lots of tools at your fingertips to be able to work with. I think the idea of um, acknowledging the fact that talent is fluid and the younger the talent, the more fluid the talent is just something we have to acknowledge. And so the question is, are you providing the right kind of experience that is going to make you want to choose to go there and then stay there? The number one reason people leave their jobs, whether in advertising or anywhere else, is their manager. Either they believe their manager is an effective advocate and mentor for them, or they don't. And so, so much of this is making sure that you're training the fundamentals of talent. Now, that doesn't help um, a recent college grad because they don't know what they don't know. But I think once you're in the industry and you're trying to think through what's the right next step for me, I think people are looking to figure out, hey, how is this company going to help me grow and become a better professional? And if you invest, you get the return. But there's obviously a pretty big financial incentive there as well. I mean, how effectively are agencies able to compete on that front against like the, the yeah, Googles Google. or the Facebooks? You know, in, in some in some instances, money becomes such a big driver that there's no point in having a discussion. And yeah. but there there is always that threshold. I will say most times that's not the threshold, though. We don't lose people over money. We lose people over, you know, either they didn't have a manager that was looking out for them or they look to get out of the industry. We've had a lot of people leave because literally last week I had a guy resign. He was 23 years old. 
because he's going to go see the world. I can't compete with that. It's I got nothing. Time. Sorry, dude. You're on your own, right? So um, in those cases... There, and there, do you there's... think that's happening more just because young people are more likely to want to drop everything and see the world these days, or it's just that's just how it is? I, I don't think it's measurably different than it was a few years ago, but it is certainly measurably different than it was, let's say, when, you know, when I was starting out 20 years ago. I mean, but over the past few years, we always get these, you know, one-off people leaving to, you know, go join the Peace Corps or, you know, dig wells and such. I mean, that, that definitely happens, and that will continue to happen. And, you know, as somebody who was, I was so like I was so driven in my young 20s professionally and personally I had my first kid at 24 like I just never had those kinds of experiences but I understand and recognize the fact that that's just a deep rooted love and desire that people have to make a difference so we want to find a way to do that I mean one of the things that we did um, just last month is we started this initiative called the den which is called digital education for nonprofits so instead of most agencies who take on like a pro bono client either to get awards or just to have diversity of uh, you know creativity we were big believers as we often are in education and the idea of teaching a man to fish so instead of just taking on one pro bono client we invited as many as many nonprofits as we could fit into our office and did a full day of training on all things search, social, crisis management, donor research, anything we could to help nonprofits get better. And we had over 150 nonprofits register to attend, and then we live streamed it. And so we reached hundreds of thousands beyond that. And one of the motivations to do it is, A, I believe, I'm a big believer in teaching a man to fish. Another one is that I knew it was going to motivate our employee base because they want to make a difference too. And so everybody was more than happy to donate their time because they, were, they knew that they were going to be giving back. And I think that that's important for an organization to have that culture of giving back. And it certainly helps with retention. We've got to take a quick break, but we will have more with Sarah Hofstetter after this. Stick around. Hi, this is Jason Gay, sports writer at the Wall Street Journal, and I have a podcast called Free For All. And guess what? It's not just sports. We'll also talk about some real estate, some music, some culture, some fashion. I could talk about fashion. It's the Free For All. Become a subscriber on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at WSJ Podcasts. And check us out at WSJ.com slash podcasts. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Media Mix podcast. We are joined by Sarah Hofstetter, uh, 360i CEO. Um, so, Sarah, we have to ask you, um, obviously, a sort of a big issue in the agency world um, over the last couple of weeks has been the issue of rebates. Um, dun, and, dun, dun. <laughs> um, which, you know, have sort of been rumored for, I, I guess, a couple of years at this point. But obviously, there was a, a big report by the Associ Association of National Advertisers that sort of came out and said, you know, this is going on. Um, just kind of curious to get a sense from you how you think, how important this is, and uh, I guess how damaging potentially it is for agency-client relationships. I, I really can't speak to the industry on this one. I can only speak to our agency, which is we've never done any of that stuff. And I work for a company that's never done any of that stuff. So I just I can't really speak to that one. So, I mean, just sorry, for, dude. No, no, it's okay. I mean, just so <laughs> I had to ask for, yeah. for our listeners that this what, what we're talking about is, um, you know, the idea that uh, 
the advertising agencies might be receiving uh, or are receiving in some cases in this report documents um, sort of rebates from uh, media companies to direct client spending there, uh, but but not necessarily that the sort of client is none the wiser. So um, it's a it's a hotbed issue uh, I, in, I in advertising, the, and so it's something that obviously people are talking about. We wanted to yeah. Ask. I mean, the, the broader question is, um, I, I guess there's always been sort of this uh, not tension, but um, you know, a, a client is always sort of I guess nervous about working with third parties and. Um, I'm just kind of curious to get a sense from you of how you think this might impact the way that that clients think about working with agencies more generally. Again, not not for you guys specifically, but I, I think in general, agencies and, and clients need to have a degree of transparency, and a big part of that ties back to education. Mm-hmm. Clients have a responsibility um, to their company to where it makes sense their shareholders to have a knowledge as to where their money is going and how it's being spent and all that. I mean, it's it's not a black box. We, we're big believers in the importance of transparency. And we have very curious progressive clients, especially ones who like taking calculated risk um, because they're, we're living in this attention economy. And so uh, the curiosity that exists to better understand what's going on in the space and the ability to adapt to that is just as much much um, on the marketer responsibility as it is on the agency to be providing that element of education. Well, just as a follow-up to that, I mean, sort of taking it in a different direction, and you touched on this earlier, um, just talk a little bit about how you guys organize yourselves as an agency to sort of capitalize on, or, or I guess sort of deal with uh, such a rapid uh, pace of change sort of from a technology perspective and everything else. I mean, we have a lot of publishers on the podcast digital publishers who talk about the fact that you know they have to experiment in so many different areas and you know obviously that's something that you guys need to do for clients as well so how do you sort of organize as a business to to keep up with all that i think that goes back to our roots and and it's funny when people ask us about our culture we always talk about a culture of curiosity um when we started the conversation in the podcast, even about real time, I said the original real time was really in search, and that's how our agency um, was originally founded. And so, so much of this is about looking at where consumer behavior is going and figuring out the best way to adapt to that. So, when we first started out in search, the reason why we were able to have a competitive edge is because the rest of the industry had no idea how to do this. They were used to, you know, buying boxes where they could put pretty pictures, um, and so it was a highly image based. Um, environment, and they were negotiated deals. And here we've got search. It's only text-based, and it can be bought in an auction. So if we could figure out how to get ahead of consumer behavior um, and, and, and give ourselves at least a time advantage while we continue to shore up things like technology, then we continue to maintain a competitive edge. So we did that with search. Eventually, we did that with social. We did that with research um, so that we're not just look, looking at the tools that everybody else has, but how do we use the internet as a real-time focus group? That is the mindset that we bring at the organization. It's a culture of curiosity to say, hey, what if? And I do think a big part of that, and it's a real it's not just the mindset, it is structure. I don't believe in having a chief innovation officer. Innovation is everybody's job. And when you say it's everybody's job, then you know it's everybody's and it's nobody's job. Well, but that's it's, the thing. I mean, how do you do that on sort of a 
day-to-day basis because you know it's a great idea but you have to like deputize someone like hey you go figure out facebook live that's your well deputizing definitely plays a role in that because people again going back to the talent thing people want to know that they can make a difference so if you know that within your capability you are the expert in x y and z and it's your responsibility to be educating the rest of your group on that then you are the innovator within your group on area x the beauty is that it's not just area x that's going to get you to the promised land it's the alchemy of all of those various capabilities together. When we look at some of our more successful work in market, it's not just because we use this one little technology and we made this whatever Nike Plus-like object. It's that we looked at the totality of how to best uh, meet the consumer, but it's a combination of technology and working with influencers and understanding how the platform works and making sure your brand is discoverable. And together, you come out with breakthrough work that's not just talking to consumers, but it's work that people can't stop talking about. And that's where it, it, it works well when the innovation is in service of something and when the people that are contributing to that know that that's what they're doing. One thing we wanted to, to ask, another sort of hotbed issue in, in advertising, particularly in the agency world, like so many industries, has a real lack of diversity. Um, it's, been a, it's been a huge topic. How do you think about that? I mean, you. Uh, this is a... a you know, a big issue, and you are a female CEO. Uh, it's something that I'm sure that you Crazy. have thought about. And um, so, as like two white guys, explain to us, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the state of diversity in the advertising business, so we can understand it. Um, yeah, it's it's it, it, it's funny. I do get asked this question a lot, and I always get worried that I'm going to get taken out of context. So now that I have the podcast, they like. Don't splice this. So, uh, I'm hopeful. Yes, there are a lot of conversations about this and lots of talk in the industry about about sexism and diversity and all this other stuff. And it, it's funny. Um, I mentioned that this is my first agency job. It's also my first CEO job. Um, and when we were building this agency, uh, me and, and and a white guy, um, Brian Weiner, who's my mentor and and currently the chairman of 360i, we didn't do things based on the way things had been done before because we didn't have a way things had been done before. And so the way that we built the agency was really built on a premise of diversity of thought. So I came from a PR background, very different from, let's say, the agency background. Brian came from more of the internet economy on the publisher side. Every incremental hire we made within the organization was bringing a different point of view um, and diversity of thought. That led to diversity of talent. So no quotas, no legacy. It's just, hey, you bring a different perspective here. That sounds really interesting. And guess what? We're almost 60% women, including in management positions. We're more than a third non-white. But I only know that because we get asked that question so damn often that I have to know the answer to that. But The beauty is it just happened. Well, why do you think other agencies, it hasn't happened? Legacy. 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 I, you know, it's 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 a matter of continually. It's like you, know, you ever. I, I don't know if you guys are you know own your homes or not, but you know you you come into a home and there's wallpaper over it, and you're like, oh man, I really would love to paint, but you have to remove the wallpaper in order to paint, and then you find another layer of wallpaper and another layer of wallpaper, and you're like, all I wanted to do was just paint. Right. When you're dealing with in- infrastructures that are decades old, it's really hard to just paint over it. And I think we got to address some core issues on what is it that you're trying to do. I interviewed a candidate for a job um, last week, and I said, "Hey, you know, what are the what are the important things to you?" And 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 the guy said, "Diversity." 
And I said, tell me more about it. And he starts talking to me all about like how he needs to make sure that there's a certain number of X, Y, and Z in the organization. We need to have X number of white people, X number of black people, X number of Hispanics, X number of women. I'm like, why? And he thought I was like a bigot. I'm like, no, 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 because it's not about the quota. It is about making sure that you've got that breadth of thought and then everything else follows from it. But it has to come from a core, a, a core foundation of what matters and what is that and how does that benefit what, what, what the work really do you think that other agencies like you said you've only worked at one agency but so i i, I won't ask 12 you years but yeah i know i'm saying i won't <laughs> ask you to necessarily like recommend uh, uh for, for for your competitors mm-hmm. um but I'm happy to I'm wh- for the industry. what do you what do you um how can other agencies deal with it in the in the same way Cause like you said i mean um they have to peel back so many layers of, of the wallpaper. How, how do you do that? I mean, is it quotas didn't work for you guys, but maybe it will for, for other agencies? Or you kind of disavow that that train of thought? I mean, I, it's, it, it, it's a great question. Um, thankfully, not my problem. But <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I do think that in many cases, the big question becomes, what's your end game? Like, if your end game is to have more diversity, that's not that's not an objective, right? So what what is your objective? To be able to be more reflective, of society I like so you kind of have to start out these everybody here the irony of the whole thing is we're marketers if anybody knows how to do this it's us go back to the well, basics hope so at least <laughs> I know but what do they say about the cobbler's kids right they, right, right. they, they have no shoes so um, we, we need to kind of go back to what's the ultimate objective of what we're trying to accomplish here and and based on that then you build your your strategic plan to meet that all of these agencies, big and small, are no strangers to this. If you're small, you've been a startup and you've made a million business plans. If you're large, you can just rethink, hey, how did we get here and what is our ideal scenario going to look like? I just think that things like quotas are generally you know, shortcuts for covering up bigger issues. Is there a lack of diversity in the, the candidates that you see as well? I'm... Well, I think that this is interesting. It's uh, that this speaks to a lot of different things, which is where where do we source our talent from, right. and where do we and, and and where do we get that diversity of thought from? And the big question is: Is this an industry for me where I will be welcomed? And I do think that that is is one of the problems is that we're not getting a broad enough candidate pool holistically. I mean, it's actually one of the reasons why um, my daughter's going to be 17 next week. And when she started high school, I insisted she take a class in STEM. Why? Options. Because you know what? There aren't a lot of women in technology and, and in engineering. And who knows what she wants to do with her life, but at least she should get some sort of a baseline understanding of the breadth. And I think it's incumbent on us as an industry to be thinking through how do we train people in all kinds of backgrounds. I mean, one of our our one longstanding pro bono client, not uh, no matter what, despite the den, is the Harlem Children's Zone, and we have a partnership with them where we go down and we teach them about technology. We donate an entire tech lab to the Harlem Children's Zone, but then we go down and we teach them how to use it. We do classes at our agency. We want advertising to be a viable option for creativity. Um, so we do that. We work with Year Up. So we're definitely trying to um, educate the next generation of potential applicants to the industry. I think that is an important element to it. We can't keep sourcing from the same schools over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've got to make sure that we make it. We make the industry welcoming and and attractive to everyone. So 
just sorry, Steve. Did you no go for it? I was just uh, changing direction slightly. I mean, you you said obviously this is your first sort of agency job, but you actually started out in in journalism. I think if I I'm did. not mistaken. Um, How so- are we doing? <laughs> I've been out of the business for too long. Now the irony oh, is, as part of our good. part of our education, actually, as I, I started a journalism class at 360i, storytelling is so important, um, and all the things I learned as a journalism student completely apply to the business we're in today. So um, while I, I have been out of that business for a long time, the fundamentals there are so valuable no matter what you do in life. Well, that was kind of kind of my question. I mean, obviously, we're seeing sort of a blurring between, um, you know, marketing and journalism, content, whatever you want to Everything call it. is content. Everything is content now. Um, so I'm just kind of curious, I mean, how you see that evolving uh, in terms of, I don't know, consumer sort of trust of some of this stuff. I mean, I know, you know, you guys are in that arena. Yeah, I mean, the, the blurring of the lines between advertising and editorial is not something I'm particularly comfortable with. Um, and that probably goes back to just the old school journalism roots. I also believe in the importance of earning consumer trust, and that's going to affect the long-term viability of your publication and of your publication's brand. So I think that publishers have to be very careful about how they tread. Now, how the Wall Street Journal balances that and how BuzzFeed balances that, frankly, are apples and oranges. Right. And we have to acknowledge that. So to create some element of universality around the role of sponsored content, I think, could possibly hurt the advancement of the creativity. But I do think that it's incumbent upon publishers to know what they stand for, to understand where that separation needs to be and where their line needs to be, and then make that clear to their readers. Yeah, I, I think it's... It's sort of interesting because you see, I mean, more generally, perhaps there's some malaise when it comes to people looking at advertising. I mean, we've talked a lot on this podcast about things like ad blocking, uh, software that consumers use to to avoid advertising completely. And we've kind of openly wondered whether the rise of of the fact that people are, are trying to avoid advertising as much as they can that has in turn made publishers sort of more willing to experiment with the with the blurring of the lines because people have such a distaste now for for advertising it seems i don't know do you share that view do you think that people are kind of sick of advertising and uh are are looking for and and then as a result the industry is looking for ways to kind of meld i think consumers do not like bad advertising. It's the reason why you throw out 90% of the mail that shows up at your front doorstep. So I don't think that that's anything new. It's that there's new technology available to get rid of it, whether that's a DVR or an ad blocker or whatever. And part of the issue on that is the work has to be better, right? Like the, the barrier to entry in advertising right now is so low because anybody can buy a banner ad pretty darn cheap. Right. So I think that that because the barrier to entry is relatively low, the cost of the creative is relatively low. You can kind of get in and then and then you can muck it up for everybody else. But I only think that's that's only part of the issue. Um, I I think that there is some absolutely fantastic um, places where content has been integrated into a publisher's experience in a way that is clearly advertising and yet extremely friendly to the consumer. I think what's a, lot, a good example of that? Uh, T Brand Studios, I think, has done a really great job. That's the New York Times. Yeah. Is, uh... Yeah. The New York Times branded content environment. I think they've done some really interesting stuff using people that are classically trained in the newsroom environment to come up with stories that have a hook to them. But it is very clear this is not New York Times editorial. This is 
advertorial. It's just the next generation of advertorial. But for how long do you think that will perform for advertisers? Because part, part of me can't help but think that, you know, we're sort of moving in that direction for the I guess for the reasons that Steve sort of illustrated that, you know, consumers are sort of bored of advertising. So this is a way to kind of trick them into consuming some advertising. Yeah. And then they'll learn that that's actually advertising as well. And they'll be on to the next. They'll be on to the next. You know, I think uh, it ultimately ties down to to value exchange. Um, and, and people, we've been bandying around the idea of return on involvement. Like, what am I giving and what am I getting? And right now there is, you know, obviously attention deficit rampant by human beings, period. And there's an overabundance of space available to advertise. And so whenever when you've got too much content and not enough attention span, you're going to start filtering things out. You're going to start making choices in your life about what you're choosing to look at and what you're not choosing to look at. But people are still engaging with advertising. Advertising still works. Um, there's just a lot of crap out there. Uh, and and we have to make sure that we're preserving it. I think that's one of the most exciting things about Can is getting in, inspired by the advertising that works. I happen to like the Effie's big time specifically because it actually ties to how it works and <laughs> the, the measurable impact of that. But I, I do believe that there's a lot of advertising out there that works, but it does tie back to return on involvement. It ties back to brands being discoverable and not being forced into people's lives. I think we've definitely gotten to the point of being too intrusive. Um, but if we're offering the right kind of value exchange, it's warranted and, and it's welcomed. All right. Well, we're going to have to end it there. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, that wraps it up for the WSJ Media Mix podcast. Thank you for listening. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.